Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Matthew, co-host of the Audio Judo Podcast, the parent show to this spin-off limited series podcast. Both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you are interested in any genre of music, you need to check out Pantheon. I guarantee you'll be able to find something that interests you. So please go to pantheonpodcasts.com for a full list of their offerings. On this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, your host Chris talks about the legendary saxophonist and composer John Coltrane. This is not an artist that I'm exceptionally familiar with, so I'm excited to listen to this one. We also get Chris's jazz origin story in this episode, so even though I already know that personally, I can't wait to hear how he tells it. It'll always be interesting. So here's your host, Chris. now for my origin story. Everyone needs a mentor, a coach, a teacher, an older sibling, someone who invariably knows what you need, someone who can see you for who you are, see your potential, and give you the hints and clues and inspiration you need in order to get there. Someone who opens doors to you, showing you things you've never seen before. My friend Scott invited me over to his house to watch a video in 1992. He'd already expanded my interest in the music of Bob Dylan and Neil Young throughout the year, and it introduced me to the wonders of such acts as Joni Mitchell, the MC5, and Funkadelic, among others. After Jane's addiction and Nirvana had blown up in the last year or two, it felt like merely the beginning of a renaissance in music. It felt like all the classic rock music of my youth had to make way for the underground, the college rock, the alternative scene at the very beginning of my 20s. It all felt new and exciting. Who knew that all that momentum would mostly end in just a couple of years? Thankfully, Scott handed me another option that night. We should all allow ourselves options in life, whether it's a door out of a bad relationship, a window into a better work environment, or merely something else to listen to should the music suddenly dissipate. He popped in the video, and for the next hour, I watched something called The World According to John Coltrane. It starts with a short clip of Coltrane playing the song So What, a track featured on Kind of Blue, the Miles Davis album we spoke of in our last episode. The sound of his tenor sax grabbed me right away. It sounded commanding, exploratory, unending, unyielding. The video intersperses some history with some interviews and truncated live versions of songs like My Favorite Things and Impressions. Other legendary names came up like Coleman Hawkins and Charlie Parker, who were early influences on Coltrane, as they had been for so many other musicians of the 1940s and 50s. In 1957, after being released from Miles Davis's band due to his heroin addiction, he began to play with the legendary Thelonious Monk, one of the most distinctive composers and recording artists in history. Most of the live footage from the video is shown with Coltrane's classic quartet. These were the men who would help bring Coltrane's vision to light. Just as Miles Davis had two quintets that lasted about five years or so, Coltrane's quartet lasted largely from 1961 to 1965. In 1960, two members would join. You had McCoy Tyner on piano, 
who sounded elegant and clean against Coltrane's deep and soulful sax, able to expand in all directions. Alvin Jones, originally from Pontiac, Michigan, near where I grew up, beat the absolute living shit out of the drums in a way I had never heard before, with precision and propulsion and stamina I could not fathom. Now, I'm a drummer guy. I imagine some of this stems from my grandfather playing in big bands and combos from the 1950s or the 1980s in and around metropolitan Detroit. I always loved me some Ringo, some Bonzo, some Neil Peart of Rush, some Keith Moon, and Phil Collins when he used to make a lot more interesting sounds on the drums before he became a popular singer. I could not believe what I saw. Steam emanated from Elvin Jones's head as if he might explode somehow. The most surprising thing is that he didn't. Jimmy Garrison, the fourth member of the quartet, played bass. He didn't join until 1961, but he stuck around longer than the other two. I'm not necessarily a bass guy. It can be difficult for me to hear exactly what any bassist is doing. As I'm not a musician, I don't fully understand how he helps to hold the band together. However, in this particular video, you can see the sweat pouring from his forehead while he kept up with the other players beautifully. In this video, the quartet had been joined on several occasions with someone who would become another one of my favorite artists, the multi-instrumentalist Eric Dolphy. Most of the live footage must have taken place in 1961, as that's when Dolphy joined them for a tour of Europe. The four, and sometimes five of them, working together to make this music had in one hour changed my life. I just had my Road to Damascus conversion moment. It might have been the most religious or spiritual hour of my life. I would not see life the same again. I would not accept mediocrity in music again. They threw down the gauntlet and opened up a whole new world to me. The next day, I assessed the music I had, selected 20 CDs whose value had now been greatly diminished to my ears, and traded them in to a local used record store. I purchased seven new albums based on the credit I received, and they were... 1. Blue Train, recorded in 1957. 2. Giant Steps, recorded in 1959. 3. My Favorite Things, recorded in 1960. 4. Live at the Village Vanguard, recorded in 1961. 5. Live at Birdland, recorded in 1963. 6. The Gentle Side of John Coltrane a compilation of ballads and lighter recordings from 1961 through 1965. And seven, Miles and Coltrane, a largely live recording from 1958. Watching that video one day, and the next day at the record store, trading away the old in order to make way for the new, were two of the best musical days of my life. That video set a new standard for me. I would not have something just to have it. The music had to mean something. It had to live for me. It had to become a part of my identity. No longer would I buy music just to put a check mark next to it and say, yep, got that one. Now, I can't promise that I'll open up new worlds of music to you. I can't promise that I am the greatest jazz expert you are ever going to come across. I can't promise you'll like every record that I mention. But I can teach you how to fish for yourself. And, I'm sure, by the end, 
I can pass on at least 100 recommendations your way. While I can't promise a religious conversion like I had, perhaps you too will find the music filling up your soul like it did for me. the song Impressions, a song that originated from performing Miles Davis's So What. The John Coltrane Quartet would play that song live for years, and every version I have heard is great. Miles Davis had a problem. It's 1955, and he has been clean from drugs for six months. He's caught the eye of George Avakian with Columbia Records, the biggest record company in the land, and George wants to sign him away from Prestige Records, Miles's current label. This would mean more money, more work, and more, well, prestige. This could vault him right back into the stratosphere after four years of wallowing in the muck due to his drug use. He couldn't screw up this opportunity. He had his rhythm section in place. All he needed was a great saxophone player to complete his band. But Sonny Rollins was nowhere to be found. It seems Sonny went to get himself cleaned up from heroin as well. Who should Miles get in the meantime? The new kid up from Tampa, Cannonball Adderley? John Gilmore from Sun Ra's band? His drummer, Philly Joe Jones, let Miles know that John Coltrane from the Philadelphia area would be available. Miles had known of Train as far back as the late 40s. Train had played on a record that Miles liked while he was still in the Navy. He had heard him play in Dizzy Gillespie's big band. However, just a few years prior, Miles played on the same nightstand with Rollins and Coltrane and Rollins blew him off the stage. Train had a long way to go in 1952. Running out of time, Miles selected Train because he knew the tunes. Miles didn't expect much. Perhaps he was just biding his time until Rollins had cleaned himself up. What he discovered in his audition is that Train had come a long way. He could hear Train exploring something. He tried to play everything. In an interview in 1959, Train stated, I'm trying so many things at one time that I haven't sorted them out. I have a whole bag of things I'm trying to work through and get the one essential, but I haven't played them enough and I'm not familiar enough with them yet to play the one single line to them. So I play all of them. John Coltrane was born in Hamlet, North Carolina in 1926, the son of a preacher man. His grandfather was a minister as well. In 1938, both his father and grandfather passed away, leaving young John Coltrane as the man of the house at the age of 12. Soon, his grandmother and aunt passed away. All this took place within months of one another. Having just taken up the clarinet, music became a lifeline for him. I can't possibly correlate exactly how all this death affected his music, but I'm sure it played at least some small part in his explorations. 
I'm sure his style reflected trying to pack in as much of life as he could, as no one knew more than Coltrane just how short life could be. In 1943, his family moved to Philadelphia. After a short stint in the Navy towards the end of World War II, he found work wherever he could get it, backing various jazz and R&B singers in big bands or any other small combos he could find. After several years making the rounds, he found himself in two of his heroes' big bands, both Dizzy Gillespie's and the great alto saxophonist Johnny Hodges, who had spent so much time in Duke Ellington's band. Miles later said, After we started playing for a while, I knew that guy was a, well, again, my kids might listen to this someday, maybe even later today. I don't want them to hear their father repeat Mr. Davis's language. Let's just say that he liked to use the phrase on Samuel Jackson's wallet in Pulp Fiction in order to describe a good musician. He used that phrase a lot. How did Trang get to be so good in such a short period of time? The old-fashioned way. He practiced more than anyone else did. He didn't care about anything else. When he wasn't on the bandstand, he was practicing. When everyone else went to sleep, he was practicing. When his playing woke other people up in the hotel and he was told to shut up, he continued practicing. His fingerings, anyway. He often fell asleep with the tenor sax still in his hands. Notice, the second track from the aforementioned Blue Train album, one of the few times Coltrane appeared on the important Blue Note label. In September 2017, under the moniker Bob and Bob 8, I created a thread on the Jazz Reddit called How to Build a John Coltrane Collection. It's a decent precursor to what I'm doing here. There are several main points that I made in that thread that I would like to share. Number one, it's all good. It's impossible for me to tell you exactly which John Coltrane album would be the perfect one to start with, or the one that you will love the most. Therefore, two, because every year or so he evolved into something else as a musician, he had several different periods. Hell, in 1965, he changed every month or so. Therefore, you as the listener have several different directions in which to choose from. So, three... My suggestion to all new listeners to John Coltrane should be to at least listen to five different albums of his in order to figure out which direction you might want to go to. Those five albums have already been mentioned so far in my podcast. They are 1. Blue Train 2. Kind of Blue 3. Giant Steps 4. My Favorite Things and 5. A Love Supreme I think these are the best places to start, mainly because they are the most accessible records in his career. They're also the highest sellers, and several of them are his most critically acclaimed. Each record offers a particular direction you can head in if you like that particular album. 
With Blue Train, you get the first album under his name that has mostly his own compositions. If you ever saw the Cameron Crowe movie Singles in 1992, you may have already heard the title track. I love that song. It's got that clarion call beginning before the first solo that lets the listener know that someone or something important has arrived. While the whole album is great, my favorite song is Moments Notice, the song I played just a few short minutes ago. It's immediately accessible and oddly affecting in its melody. I'm kind of playing a trick on you. In the Miles Davis episode, I mentioned that the best place to get into not only Miles Davis, but all of jazz, is by picking up his working, cooking, relaxing, and steaming albums. Well, that is true. However, I think picking up Kind of Blue makes as much sense if you want to get into John Coltrane because he's incredible on this album. The working, cooking, relaxing, and steaming albums will do just as well. I think what I'm doing here is proving my point and that there is no single record that is the best place to start. Giant Steps has a lot of great songs. It's a great display for Coltrane's compositions. The title track, Mr. PC, Cousin Mary, and Naima all sound like standards to me. The title track itself, from what I understand, is one of those rites of passage for any musician who wants to show that they can handle difficult material. There's a great video by the YouTube channel Vox that refers to it as the most feared song in jazz. From what little I understand of classical music, Johann Sebastian Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier and Niccolo Paganini's 24 Caprices were both meant to be exercises as well as challenges to any musician willing to take them on. It sounds to me like Coltrane's Giant Steps is another such piece. Prior to going into the recording studio, the musicians had not rehearsed the songs. Tommy Flanagan, an otherwise incredible pianist, sounds so tentative in his solo, Coltrane has to finish it off for him. In March of 1960, John Coltrane went out on tour to Europe with Miles Davis. Those recordings are fantastic, as I highly recommend the live in Stockholm date once you've listened to Miles with Coltrane for a while. If you listen to Coltrane's solo on the original version of So What, compared with his version on Live in Stockholm, it sounds like he's wringing out or squeezing out old versions of himself, making himself anew right there on the stage. Like all the best artists, he is always restless, always on to the next thing, always searching for that elusive thing that drives him. Miles Davis gave him a soprano saxophone as a parting gift. By May, Coltrane had Elvin Jones on drums and McCoy Tyner on piano in his quartet. In October, they recorded three albums worth of material over the course of three days. My Favorite Things, Coltrane Sound, and Coltrane Plays the Blues. The title track in My Favorite Things features his new soprano sax. Coltrane would say that by playing on the soprano, he found that he would play it all over the instrument. 
This in turn helped give him the encouragement to play as much of the tenor sax as possible, rather than the certain ideas he played in certain ranges. While the song has been described as the most famous soprano saxophone recording of all time, it's not Coltrane's sax that I look forward to most. It's McCoy Tyner's piano playing. It's hypnotic. It's elegant. It's beautiful. It sounds to me like the onset of spring, which is somewhat ironic since My Favorite Things is played more often among other Christmas songs these days. Let's take a listen here to McCoy Tyner's piano playing on My Favorite Things. On the same album, Elvin Jones shines on the drums in a solo on the standard Summertime. I wish I could play the whole thing, but his solo is over two minutes long. Picking a mere 30 second sound clip for you from those two minutes or so is pretty difficult. But here goes nothing. Elvin Jones on drums in the song Summertime. Coltrane's quartet reminds me what I like to hear from bands and songs. Everyone's instrument is present. Everyone plays an important part in the song. Everyone has a moment to shine or stand out or merely assert themselves, clearly exhibiting that they are there for a reason. I hear it in all the best songs from the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or The Who or Rush or U2 or basically any band that I like. Every musician is important to the final product. That may or may not be why I'm not always sold on big band music. It's hard to know exactly who I am hearing play a particular sound. The last essential Coltrane album for any beginner to listen to is A Love Supreme, recorded in December 1964. However, I'm not going to speak of it at length here. There's so much more to the story before I get into that, and I'm not going to do that at this time. That's for a later episode to discuss. It's hard to keep track of how many records John Coltrane appeared on, really. With new material being found and released decades later, with repackaging, with releasing titles under different names. But from the beginning of 1956 to the end of 1958, John Coltrane would appear on some 40 to 50 recordings. In an understatement, his playing had become high in demand. I've already mentioned several recordings with Miles Davis in episode 2. I'll be talking about his recordings with Thelonious Monk in episode 5. He will also appear a couple times in the Collaborations episode I intend later in the season. You can find most of these recordings from 1956 to 1958 in a 16-disc box set called The Prestige Recordings. I wouldn't recommend buying a 16-disc box set right away to anyone, 
That could be a foolish and outrageous purchase in the beginning of anyone's introduction to Coltrane. However, if you like his recordings with Miles Davis, if you like his album Blue Train, if you enjoy the recordings he did with Thelonious Monk, and if you find that you enjoy his album Giant Steps, and if you start becoming a fan of my favorite things, if his numerous live recordings from 1961 through 1963 leave you salivating, and if you eventually get around to Love Supreme, which we'll talk about in that future episode, if you find yourself liking all these other albums and wanting more, if you completely fall under a spell like I did, then the Prestige Recording 16-disc box set is an absolute must-have purchase. If you really fall in love with them, it's just the quickest and most efficient way to pick up those 25 to 30 albums that would take too long to track down. If you're not as crazy as I am, and you merely want to sample those years, there are three albums from that box set that I would recommend to you. They are Mating Call by Tad Damron, Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane by, oddly enough, Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane, and Soul Train. The Mating Call album is just great. There's something about Damron's piano and how well Coltrane fits in with his material. Try listening to the song Superjet on YouTube. I'm not normally a jazz guitar guy. That's why Matt from Audio Judo is going to handle that episode. But that record with Burrell is fantastic. Try the song Freight Train if you get a chance. The Soul Train album is a somewhat important record for a number of reasons. It has a song on it called I Want to Talk About You. Coltrane would go on to play that song live a number of times in 1963. There are several live versions out there that are dynamite. They're virtually solo extravaganzas. There's a song called Good Bait, which reminds me a lot of that song Heart and Soul, which everyone knows, I think. Especially if you've watched Tom Hanks and Robert Loggia in the movie Big. Finally, there's a song called Russian Lullaby, which is hardly a lullaby. It sounds more like Flight of the Bumblebee, that classical music piece by Rimsky-Korsakov, or Charlie Parker's song, Bird Gets the Worm, which will feature in episode six. My senior year of college, I had a poetry writing class. Having written a couple hundred songs without music, so they were kind of poems, I thought I was hot shit. I thought I had paid my dues. I thought I was already somewhat of a poet. Our first assignment had been to write a poem that utilized colors. I thought what I wrote would wow the rest of the class. I don't have the exact poem anymore, which is best for all of us, really. But the story of the poem involved me walking into a bar where Coltrane's horn blew a bunch of colors that meant a bunch of different things. It was a terrible poem, really. My teacher reviewed the poems in order of how successful they were as poems. And I'm pretty sure mine had been reviewed in the last quartile of class. Still, it had one good idea in it. When Coltrane blew his horn, he told me, my dreams aren't far enough. 
In the simplest of terms, I think this referred back to my road to Damascus conversion night. I didn't know all that existed out there because I hadn't experienced it. I didn't know real hardship. I couldn't fully grasp the blues. I didn't know what love was. I didn't understand the importance and complexity of relationships. I had no concept of what it meant to love and be loved unconditionally. I had no idea where I was going or where I could go. I didn't know what I was capable of. I hadn't put myself out there enough to know how far I could take it. My mind had been narrow. My imagination, less so. My desires, temporary. My needs, unmet. How could I know anything? My dreams hadn't gone far enough. In the 27 years since, my dreams still haven't gone far enough. I've not finished my novels. I've had a handful of career changes because I couldn't dream what the hell I would do after college. But this isn't about me. I look around and I see so many relationships that have gone terribly wrong. And I tell you, your dreams aren't far enough. You should demand more of yourself and more of your significant others. And if they can't comply, fly on. Because your dreams aren't far enough. You can't comprehend that there's someone else out there waiting for you. Waiting to meet you. Wanting to spend every moment they can with you. With a world of love and respect and encouragement that you can't fathom. Your dreams aren't far enough. I'm not encouraging divorce. I'm just saying. The government we have, it has met its limitations, and it has largely failed us. It had been established with lofty words and lofty ideals, but it has dissolved into something so base and lacks the flexibility and servitude it demands. Our government's dreams aren't far enough. This whole division in our country, I suppose it may have been inevitable, given that we are made up of so many different cultures, with different histories, different religions, and different ideas as to what is right, but our dreams aren't far enough. It turns out, based on a documentary, The Social Dilemma, it's just our viewing habits that have divided this nation. Viewing habits! We dream in fear and loathing of the other side. We dream in problems and not solutions. Our dreams aren't far enough. If they were, we could come together and agree on something. Race relations, the relationships between men and women. If the last few years have taught us anything, our dreams have not been far enough in the least. We're talking hundreds and thousands of years with very little in the way of progress in these two most basic of areas. We just have to have the self-respect to want more out of our lives. Anyone who has had a boss that made them feel low, anyone who has had a coach diminish them, anyone who has had a so-called friend make them feel less than, your dreams aren't far enough. Know that there's more out there. There's more to explore. There is something more waiting for you if you just practice hard enough, if you just work hard enough, if you just break through those fears that hold you back. That's what John Coltrane means to me.
That's the song, The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. It's a track off of the Coltrane Sound album, a recording made within the same week of his immortal My Favorite Things album. In 1961, Coltrane would expand his sound with an expanded band. On the Africa Brass album, his first for the Impulse label, he brought in a larger band to include French horns, a euphonium, and a baritone sax in order to record a song called Africa. Around the same time, he recorded an album called Olay, adding Eric Dolphy, an important collaborator and friend in Coltrane's life, to play alto sax and flute. He also brought in Freddie Hubbard to provide trumpet and an additional bass player in Art Davis. In November of 1961, he would record several dates at the Village Vanguard. The first album released from these dates was the original three-track album I bought, but now you can purchase a four-disc set. Two kinds of albums dominated 1962 and 1963, ballads and live recordings. He recorded three ballad-driven albums, one with a singer, Johnny Hartman, another in collaboration with Duke Ellington, and another simply titled ballads. They aren't necessarily my favorites, but there are a lot of Coltrane fans that champion these records. From 1961 to 1963, Coltrane's quartet, sometimes again with Eric Dolphy, recorded an extensive number of live albums. There's a Live in Paris album that has an incredible 25-minute version of Mr. PC. Others have long 20-minute versions of My Favorite Things. The Afro Blue Impressions album has an incredible version of this song, Lonnie's Lament, that I would highly recommend to everybody. Pianist McCoy Tyner's playing on that particular song is outstanding. There are a good seven or so live albums recorded from late 62 to late 63 alone, and I wouldn't steer you away from any of them. Some of them might not necessarily have the greatest sound recording quality, but that's not always why you listen to bands playing live. To close out this episode of John Coltrane, Another will come later in the series. I have to admit that in my writing process for this series, I often hear the Dennis Hopper character from Apocalypse Now as the voice in my head. Do you remember the character? He was a photojournalist at Kurtz's compound for some reason. He would say things like, What are they going to say about him? What are they going to say? He was a kind man. He was a wise man. He had plans. He had wisdom. Bullshit, man. Am I going to be the one that's going to set them straight? Look at me wrong. Well, that's sometimes how I feel when I'm singling things out, attempting to steer you in a direction that may or may not be the perfect route to jazz nirvana. What are they going to say? That you should listen to these records and not those records? Like I know exactly how to describe the importance or the enormity of the effect Miles Davis or John Coltrane have on people? Look at me wrong. But you know... I'd written the first draft of this podcast and was terrible. In no way did I give you, my beloved audience, any idea of why Coltrane was my favorite jazz artist. It lacked thrust. It lacked heft. Two things his playing has an abundance of. It lacked any explanation of how or why I connected with him in his music. Part of it lies in his myth. By myth, I'm not referring to any widely held but false thoughts or beliefs. There are enough of those in the world today. And anyway, that's merely the second definition of a myth. The first definition of a myth is a traditional story explaining some natural or social phenomenon, 
typically involving supernatural beings or events. I can imagine listening to Coltrane and his band at a live show. That must have sounded like a supernatural event. You listen to an artist's music enough, a sort of magic happens. You connect with that music. This connection with the music becomes larger than the musician's creation of the music itself. This creation becomes part of your identity. Your connection to this music becomes part of the larger world, especially when you find others who also connect with the music. You find community. I'm trying very hard, but I don't know if I can convey to you, my dear listener, the magic that Coltrane created through the years, especially when Tyner and Jones joined the band. These artists explored an endless array of ideas on their respected instruments, playing together and lighting sparks for one another. They stretched and expanded outward in every direction until they could not do it anymore. And so I'm driving home from work on Sunday. It's tax season as I write this. And I'm asking myself, how can I possibly portray the magic that's created by these individuals? Can I possibly impress upon the listener the power they wield in lifting your soul out of your body and making you feel free? When on the radio, Ozzy Osbourne's Crazy Train comes on. It's a song my brother used to play a lot as a teenager. I suppose in the 80s, it might have sounded tough or rebellious or it tapped into his teenage frustrations. But now, it's just a great catchy song from a bygone era, with Randy Rhodes's guitar skipping across the water like it's the freest thing on earth. And I thought to myself, poor Randy Rhodes. He died at the age of 25 in a plane crash. That guy was so talented. Maybe we're just here on earth to make our contribution, and then we're gone. Coltrane died when he was 41. Charlie Parker, 34. So many of the greats died far too young. I started tearing up. I think about all these other things that have made me tear up in the last few years. My daughters, of course. My beautiful wife. I think about the Stark family in Game of Thrones, how they were wronged so egregiously that nothing could possibly make up for the collective loss. I think about the cast of Shit's Creek. I think about the magic that starts with an idea. It's written down. It's presented to us in a visual manner. And we connect. We feel. That's magic. I think about another musical hero of mine, Neil Peart, drummer for the band Rush. He died last year due to a brain tumor. I think about all the magic he created with two other guys for 40 years. Whether you like their music or not, somehow their drums and their bass and the guitar and the keyboards and vocals and words somehow fit perfectly inside one another to create songs that connected with millions of us nerds out there. And that's magic. These artists are sensitive souls, both a part of us and a part of this world. But something about them is too much for this world. Am I right? Or am I just another victim of the overload of the last handful of years coming apart at the seams? I can't tell anymore. Please write me at chris at audiojudo.com to let me know what you think or how you feel. With all these thoughts, I was just hoping no one saw me going off the rails on my own crazy train. Pardon the pun. I've always thought that what you listen to helps to define who you are. I do think that listening to Coltrane has the possibility of expanding your own notion of yourself. I think he has a way of opening you up to the possibilities that you might not have known or seen before, of unlocking your spirit. I think he has the ability to lift you up out of your body, 
cleanse you with the truth blowing out of his horn, not in any stupid colors like I tried to write in that poem all those years ago, but with a truth everyone can believe him, something so lacking in our country today. God bless you, all my love, Chris. There it is. Thank you so much, Chris. That was a lot of information. Uh, it's an education into one of the jazz greats. And by the way, I've known Chris for a better part of 30 years, and I've read some of his poetry. Don't let him fool you. It's quite good. Chris divided his recommendations for album choices into two rounds this week, uh, probably by level of importance, I'm assuming. So here's the list. The first round, Blue Train, Kind of Blue with Miles Davis, Giant Steps, my favorite things, A Love Supreme. The second round, Mating Call with Tad Dameron, Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane with Kenny Burrell, Soul Train, Coltrane Sound, Coltrane Plays the Blues, Africa Brass, Olay, Afro Blue Impressions. So pick one of those up, give it a listen, drop us a line and tell us what you think. The website is audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ, or you can get a hold of us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Audio Judo Does Jazz, or on Twitter at Audio Judo Jazz, or you can send us an email at jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with any questions or comments, please email him at chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. And you can find more of that at audiojudo.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you all next time. Bye-bye.